But I entitled today's message, A Holy Litmus Test, and I want to begin with some concepts as we get started. First thing I want to talk about is our identity, and in order to express that, I'm about to address Christians. Before I do that, there are some of us here who would not define ourselves as Christians, We are here because we're invited by a friend. We are here to seek out maybe whether or not this stuff is legit. We are here to examine and find out if indeed our God has communicated with us. We are here to look and say, God, are you talking to me? I have a message for you. And that is, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you intensely. And he will not stop pursuing you. I need you to know that God is not found only in this building, that he's going to hound you home. He will chase after you at work and he will continue to whisper to you in the car. And I cannot imagine living the lives that we live without Jesus Christ. I cannot imagine having to face who I am without knowing that I'm forgiven. I cannot imagine trying to have any hope or purpose for tomorrow without knowing that a God has created me for a purpose. And so if you need to receive Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, then I need you to come talk to me. I need you to come talk to the team after the service, because the whole time you may be engaging with God and not hearing a word I say. That's completely cool. Even Christians don't listen to me. Right afterwards, right underneath this enormous banner that says pray, there's a team there. If you can't find me, this team is waiting to pray with you. They want to talk to you about what it means to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can't have you leave feeling lost. I need to have you leave feeling loved. All right? To those of us that call ourselves Christians, we would walk under the Christian banner. We said, yes, I've engaged with the Lord Jesus Christ and he has forgiven me. To you, I speak about identity, who you are as a person. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away and what? Behold, all things have become new. You have a new identity, whether you choose to understand that and try to operate in that or not actually doesn't really matter. You have been made new. So we need to learn a little bit more about who we are as opposed to who we're trying to be. So let's take a look at identity for a moment. We were saved to be different. We were rescued to be different. We were rescued to be like Jesus. It's what our very definition term means, Christian. We're like Christ. It is our job to submit to the Lord and what He wants and let Him mold us into looking like Him. That's what we do. We are holy. We are saints. You know, I'm not a... Hold on. If you are a believer... That term applies to you. Well, I don't think I deserve that. Oh, it's not a matter of deserving. You certainly don't deserve it, and neither do I. But it was given to you. 
because someone else paid the high price that you may wear that title. You are saints. You are holy. Holy has a couple different definitions, and we're going to talk about it. It's going to be mentioned about four times today. Holy means set aside for a very special purpose. I want you to think in terms of uh, China or good silverware, saying that when there is a, a special occasion, we will take something that has been set aside all year and now engage with it because it's special. All right. The other term that we use for holy in scripture is this idea that we are being made differently to look like God. And there is a fancy term that goes along with that, which is called sanctification. You're going to hear that phrase quite a bit today, too. Don't let it bother you. It's a very easy to understand concept, and we're going to get into that. But here's what I need you to know. Because we have been set aside for a special purpose and we are not like the rest of the world, because we've been set aside for a specific purpose of demonstrating God to the world and advancing his kingdom, we are to live differently. Right? Pretty simple. Therefore, we are to be in a consistent mode of change. A little bit counterintuitive. Constant change. Like a pot on a pottery wheel, right? Let's go old school. Everybody's heard this if you were in the church growing up. Why? Because it's mentioned in scripture. As a matter of fact, a prophet in the Old Testament was taken and God said, I want you to look at something. And he takes him to a pottery house. And he says, now see how that lump of clay is sitting there. What is that good for? Now, I want you to think what a lump of clay is good for because many of us are very content being that. I don't quite know... What you do with a lump of clay, except for go, look, a lump of clay. Can't use it really as a paperweight. It's just a lump of clay. However, that lump of clay is taken and placed on a potter's wheel and a artist then begins to work with it and fashion it into something useful. That is the Christian life. We are taken as a lump of clay and we begin to be fashioned into what we were supposed to be here for. Why the clay was there in the first place. We are to be in the constant mode of change. Resistance is absurd. Why? Because basically you look back and a little lump of clay says, why are you touching me? Because you're a lump of clay and I'm a potter, so I'm going to shape you. I'm fine how I am. Actually, you're not. You're a lump of clay. I don't want you to push there. Okay, I know what I'm making. You don't know what you're becoming. This is silly. Why are you resisting? Clay cannot resist the hands of the potter. The potter gets a chance to press in. Resistance is absurd and shaping and submitting to that is absolutely necessary. Giving and saying, Lord, where do you wish to press? For you know better than I do, right? So I will give where you want me to give, that I might be able to be what you want me to be. Hopefully these are pretty basic concepts. However, doing it is totally different. Now check this piece out. In God's mercy and gentleness, much of God's change is suggested first. As opposed to forced on you. Why? 
because he wants to see if there's a willingness to change. Why? Because you'll own it if you take part in it. See, if God wants to bring change upon you, he certainly can. It's within his power to just go, oh, look, and then just stick his hand into the pot and just melt the whole thing down. I mean, he easily can mess up anything going on with the pot. He doesn't need your permission. He can just go lump and then move it down and then make something else and move it down and make something else. However, because he has called us children, because he has adopted us, he will say things like, hey, real quick, I need you to adjust this in your life to see if you'll say, yes, Lord, that's a great idea. I don't know what you're making, but that's what I want to do. I want to be soft in your hands. He will suggest so you can own it. If you resist, he may well suggest again. Or he may just push. Because he will shape you. He will shape you somehow. Do you want to be a part of that process? All right. Much of the Christian life and what we talk about and what the Bible is talking about is much about identity. Becoming who you are. Becoming who you are internally. Christ in you pushing outward. Right? The Holy Spirit putting his hands on the sides of your heart and expressing himself outward in you. To resist that or to say, no, we're cool. No, no, no. Don't worry about it. We don't need any more change. Seems silly. Because it's interesting, as the potter is making this pot, he would go, well, I'm going to start to make this. And it's funny because the pot may go, oh, I get it. I'm a salad bowl. Yeah, right on. Kind of small salad bowl. That's cool. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Whoa, whoa, I'm a vase. Look at me, I'm a vase. Right? I'm going up into a vase. Oh, no, 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 no. Vases don't look like that. I'm a pitcher. Yeah, right? The whole time the master is moving things. You don't know the end product, but God does. And he is orchestrating the whole process. When he gets done with you, you will be what he desires. We call that sanctified. Does that make sense? All right. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. We have a command to live more and more like Jesus. We have a command to live more and more like Jesus. Not difficult to understand, but very difficult to implement. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. It's page 836, and the Bible's handed to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, page 836. I'm just going to read the first verse. We'll pray for the Word, and we'll dive into it. It says, Finally, brothers... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask, and we urge you in the Lord Jesus, to do this more and more. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, I do believe that you have done so much change and transformation in this church, in our lives, in our families. And I do believe, Lord, that today is an encouragement to do so more and more. I pray, Lord, that we would be soft in your hands, that we would mold into the shape that you desire. And when you want to change us and make us into something else useful for you, that, Lord, that we would adopt to that change as well. 
We are here for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me say this, that my heart is very similar to the heart of Paul for his church when it comes to you. I need you to be encouraged that this is not a message or my intent today is not to come in and beat you up and say, wow, you're doing a terrible job. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. We just got back from a couple days, four hours away at a leadership retreat. There was 50 of us, right? A sampling of the leadership here at this church. Uh, we had staff there. We had pastors there. We had leaders there. And we went through and filled up two huge chalkboards, about four by four, with ministries that are going on here. Two massive chalkboards. We ended up on another uh, whiteboard, writing down how many volunteers it takes to operate that ministry in a given year, and how many people it may well be impacting on an initial contact. I didn't even bother adding up the numbers at the end because they were staggering. The numbers, when Justin went through them on a quick calculation on the numbers that we could know, exceeded 12,000. The idea is that we don't have 12,000 people in the church, so that means you're getting multiple touch points from different ministries all over the place in your life. Whether we're ministering to your children, then we're ministering to the wives, then we're ministering to the husbands. Multiple touch points. And I asked... This question of the leaders, is anyone changing in your ministry? I mean, y'all sweating like crazy. You're all going through difficult times. You're sacrificing. You're giving, giving, giving. Does it matter? So I'd ask every individual leader. We'd come up and I'd go, all right, Vicky, women's ministry, are any of the women changing? Because the only way we realize that the Holy Spirit is here is change lives. So we said, is anyone changing? Her eyes brighten up and she starts firing off stories of transformation. Oh, the women are doing this and they're making this change and this is incredible and mom to mom and going on and on and on and she brightens up. Then I ask another ministry. Hey, small groups, what's going on? Mark, give me an idea. Is anybody changing in there? Family ministries, what about you? Their eyes brighten up. Well, this, 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 this. You have to understand, we as leadership staff and pastors and elders are really proud of you. As a matter of fact, we get all fired up and excited and we won't shut up. And I mean, we really love serving here. This is a great church. You are doing such an amazing job in transformation. What I'm about to do is ask you to push it more. Because I don't believe it's okay to remain where we're at. So am I proud of you? Yes. Please make no mistake. But that does not mean in any way that I will not get in your face. Amen? Amen. Let's do it. All right. Let's dive into this. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. Let's dive into the word and see what we have. Finally, brothers. And remember, he's going to consistently use the phrase brothers to indicate we're family. Finally, family members of God. We, meaning Paul, Silas, Timothy, the crew, when we set up the church originally, he said in Thessalonica, We instructed you how to live. The word in Greek is really the phrase how to walk. We taught you how to walk. We taught you how to live the Christian life. We instructed you has kind of a bit of a military term to it. We gave you orders, marching orders on how to walk. 
Real quick side note, I was going to completely blow by this in my study until I ran across a commentary by Warren Wearsby. And he came up with this idea. He said, why do we use the phrase in the Bible? Why does the Bible use the phrase walk when talking about Christianity? Seems like a very odd analogy. Why do you use the word walk? He said, I can think of six reasons why. And I was thinking there's not going to be anything here. I read them and I went, whoa, that's really deep. But I thought one of them was lame, so I cut it down to five. Anyway, here we go. Why, why the Christian life is represented by walking. Number one, he said, you have to be alive to do it. It's only for the saved. You don't go to someone who's not a Christian yet and say, hey, how's your Christian walk? You don't do that. You have to be alive in order to walk. Great. That's a prerequisite. Number two, it requires growth because babies can't. Right? Babies can't walk. They have to learn how to walk. And then they get up and they start going. So it requires growth. Number three, it requires freedom because the shackled can't. You, can't, you have to be set free to have a walk. You have to live in freedom to walk. You cannot be in bondage. Number four, it demands light because you can't do it in the darkness or you'll trip. And number five, it suggests progress towards a goal It's not for those that give up and sit down. I thought, how amazingly insightful of a word to use. That that is the Christian walk. These are all elements of our lives that need to be utilized to move forward, right? Yeah, it's really a good word. He said, brothers, when we were with you, we taught you and gave you instructions on how to do this Christian thing. To live out your identity. To be who God designed you to be. And we instructed you how to live in a manner to please God. The word, uh, that phrase can be translated to make God happy. Are you living in a manner that makes God happy? Does it please God? Now you say... Well, you mean obedience. And I say, kind of. One commentary said, I think Jonah pointed out that obedience alone isn't enough. Everybody remember the Jonah story? He did it. After God beat him up, he did it. And then after he preached like God asked him to do, what did he do? He went and sulked and hoped that the city would just get destroyed. Do you think that pleased God? So no, obedience is not enough. It's obedience with a joyful heart. Are you living in a way that is pleasing to God? Hmm. He said, we gave you instructions on how to do that. It should be the goal and motivation of the Christian living. Are you pleasing God? Is dad happy with the way I'm living? Is dad proud of me? Is a question you must always ask. He said, as in fact, you are living. In other words, kids, you're really doing good. Dad is proud. He is happy with you. Now, we ask you, and that word is gently and friend in a friendly way. And now, we ask you gently, and, it, and we what? And we urge you, that means with authority, we urge you in the Lord Jesus to please God to do this more and more. Let's keep going. 
For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. When we were with you, Jesus laid it down, said, follow my example. We explained what that was. Let's get going. Now he addresses about five different issues that were going on in that church at the time. I bring them up to you through the teaching of the word. Starts out, he said, let me give you the end result. It is God's will. It's what God wants. It's God's plan. However you want to say it. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. Remember that little phrase? Become the little pot you were supposed to be. That's what it means. The state of being set apart as holy to God. The process, sanctification, by which God moves us toward looking more and living more like Jesus, conforming to His will, being increasingly free from sin, and more and more filled with the Spirit. The Bible uses tons of different ways to say that. Take off the old clothes, put on the new clothes, right? And it goes on and on and on. I don't know what works for you, how you want to picture it. But we need to go from this to this. How do you want to look at that? Because God's going to move us down that pathway. It is his will and desire that we arrive at the end and God is going to do it. Yeah? In that process, alteration needs to occur. He said, therefore... It is God's will that you be sanctified. Part of that is this, that you should avoid sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? It's a super broad term in Greek. It includes all the forbidden sexual practices mentioned in scripture. What are those? Well, let me give you a sampling. I'll give you five. Adultery. We all clear what adultery is. Adultery. Is having sex with someone that is married and you are not their spouse. Or if you are married and have sex outside that marriage covenant, that is adultery. So adultery always involves the concept of marriage. Second phrase, fornication. Fornication is having sex and nobody's married. You're having sex outside the marriage bond. You are not married to one another, you're not married to anybody else, you're just sexually involved, forbidden in scripture. Third one, homosexuality. Outside the marriage bond, obviously, and the scripture says, we're not doing that. Incest, bestiality. I'm going to leave those definitions out. All right? Just so you don't get creeped. All right? I think we're cool. If you need to look it up, actually, don't. Uh, ask, ask, your, ask your parents, because they love answering questions. No, don't do that either. Okay, right on. You can ask me. That's cool. All right. The forbidden practices in Scripture... He said, if we are going to be the finished product pot that God wants, these impurities will need to be removed. Therefore, I need you to avoid them. Now, you would look and you'd go, all right, so we're talking to a big group of Christians, whatever. That's not new. You are mistaken. Why? Two reasons. 
Number one, these are brand new Christians. They just started. Most of them got saved six months ago when Paul was there last. They have no idea what God expects. So they're like going through and they're excited. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. And this is cool. And there's this heaven thing and Jesus is returning. And then they're like, oh, and you can't do that. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> we, okay, that wasn't in our earlier discussion. I don't, I don't really remember that part. It was brand new to some of them. And you go, well, wait a second. Maybe they were right. Number two, their whole society looked at it completely different. And they said, why in the world would you not? As a matter of fact, the Greek society had a view that monogamy and dedication and commitment to one other person was absolute silliness. Why would you do that? In their view, and it was dominating the Roman Empire still when, in Paul's day, the idea is one of their poets said, no, 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 guys run the show, and gentlemen, let me be very clear with you. You realize we have different groups of women. You have mistresses for this, you have prostitutes for that, you have wives for this. Are we all clear? That was the known understanding of the day. The whole point was, listen, just fit it in the right category. Whatever your need happens to be, you need to pursue that. Sure, you should still take care of your family and your wife. There's no question. But that doesn't help you. So these people are coming out of this environment. Some of them Jews, so they had a view that was different than that. But still, even in a Jewish concept in that day, divorce was extremely readily used. So they had no parameters or no mindset of expectation that they need to stop doing all this stuff. So all of a sudden, Paul goes, hey, real quick. We didn't get a chance to tell you everything when we were there. I just need to go back and I need to hit a few things that are really important. Okay, stop it. Avoid sexual immorality, verse 4. That each of you, this is what we need to do, that each of you should learn to possess his vessel. What does your Bible say? Learn to control his own body, right? Okay, remember I told you that in a different language, words mean two different things, and you have to pick a side. The NIV picked control your body. But possess your vessel can mean two different things. A vessel can either be your body, or it can mean your wife. And both of them are used in scripture. Both of them are used in society. So which one is it? Well, some commentaries go this way, some go that way. What would it mean? If it means self-control, we kind of get it. You possess your vessel. You have control over your own body. If it's your wife, it means and treat your wife rightly in the marital context. You go, well, they're kind of the same thing. All right. Right on. There is a third definition, but it's super creepy. And we're not going to talk about it. Here we go. The Bible's weird. Have I mentioned that lately? All right, great. That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy, godlike, and honorable, good. 
Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Not like the rest of the world who don't have any reason to do differently. Those that do not know God, and notice it does not say know about God. Knowing about God means very little. Knowing God is a whole different ballgame. It means you've had experience with, you've submitted to, you've engaged with, you understand. That's different than knowing about God. Knowing about God doesn't do a whole lot. Knowing God does a huge amount. Remember Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Later on, he says, you will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? And he says, depart from me, I never what? I never knew you. That's the phrase. Same phrase. They don't know God. There's no motivation, no understanding, no worldview in the world today about why they should do anything other than what works for them. Do not be surprised. I always kind of laugh in the back of my mind when Christians get all horrified about what the world does. Why wouldn't they? Of course they do it that way. I mean, it only makes sense, right? Because they don't have parameters that are placed in, they do not have an understanding that their God has said anything, but we do. Not only do we know our God, and He has made His expectations known to us, but He said that when He rescued us, He gave us a person and power to live differently, known as the Holy Spirit. If we have all that knowledge, understanding, plan, design, power and help why are we living like those that do not does that make sense it's a very practical concept and yet christians tend to live and try to pretend that they don't know that doesn't make sense don't live in a way that your drives and desires and urges call the shots because god has said no, you're in control. Your body doesn't get to do whatever it wants. You dictate. Your spirit controls your body, not the other way around. Okay? And that in this matter, which I would suggest means sexually, because of the context, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men. The word is actually avenger. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. What does that mean? Let's make it real quick. Practical. If you are sexually moving about in this church and harming people, we have a problem. Right? Well, no, 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 it's just I've dated a couple different people. I'm sorry, let me clarify. If you are sexually involved outside of marriage with people in this church and moving on because it didn't quite work out, we have a problem. God has a problem with you. And he's not okay with it. And it's not fine. As a matter of fact, everyone involved in that scenario is hurting someone else. No, no, no. We're all totally up front. I mean, we're all in agreement. It was consensual, blah, blah, blah. Just because someone is stupid doesn't make it okay. 
it's still a problem. And you're hurting each other because when you get sexually involved, something happens that we just don't get. We can't understand it. We can't explain it. And when we move on, there's a lingering pain. How do I know that? Because I'm a counselor and I have to pick up the pieces. Oh, it's cool for you. You moved on. I get it. Those are my sisters. Those are my brothers. And I have to sit in these offices and talk about pain. It's not okay. He said, what are we doing? God did not call us to be impure, selfish, degrading, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Do all believers have the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is yes. Everyone's looking at me. I'm like, uh, hello. That was a question. Sorry. Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're actually not a Christian. So one goes to the other. So you actually have the Holy Spirit. That makes a big difference. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Now, about Philadelphia. That's the word. You get it? Brotherly love, yeah? That's the word. Now, about Philadelphia, he says. What's intriguing is outside the New Testament, Philadelphia always means a sibling. A literal sibling. Now, in the Old Testament... It means love for a, a brother has for another literal brother. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews called one another brother if they were of the same nation. I'm a Jew, you're a Jew, we're brothers. Christianity with Jesus blew that definition open and said, I don't care what you were born, I care what you were adopted as, and you are now my brother in Christ regardless of your nationality. And that phrase brother started spinning around. Now, about our family, about our sibling love for one another, he said, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In other words, you've already, right when you got saved, you were so loving, so amazing, you're constantly trying to love on each other. You probably weren't meaning to hurt each other, I just needed to let you know you were hurting each other. But just know this, I know you love each other. And he said... And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout this whole region of Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Did they? Yep. How do we know that? Because Paul didn't write just one letter to the Thessalonians. He wrote two. So you go later on when he writes them. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Well, that's pretty cool. So he challenged them and said, not only are you amazing in love, but I want you to increase in that. Then writes a letter later. You are completely increasing in that. So that's pretty cool. They did it. We're about to read where they failed, but they did that one. Yay. Verse 11. He blasts them in three areas before he moves on. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Get fired up to chill out. 
Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. In the Bible and in the language of the day, quiet had multiple meanings. One was to stop talking. The other one was about your spirit. You would say almost the idea of saying all the sheep were really stirred up and excited because a wolf had gone by. But the presence of the shepherd allowed them all to quiet their soul and rest. Right? That's the meaning here. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Restful. Undisturbed. Settled. Not noisy. Not frantic. It means by definition, don't fret and worry about the world's activities. We are really not good at this because our little sheep, even Bridgeway sheep, which Bridgeway sheep, there's a lot of us that have been in the Lord a long time and a lot of us are pretty mature. We are still easily frantic. Oh my gosh, did you see this email? I got to send it to everyone I know. The world is falling apart. Oh my gosh, this is happening. The world's going to hell. Okay. We know. I get it. I get it. We have to come to a mature place where we can recognize the chaos, recognize the problems, find out if we can do something that we should do something, but not freak out about it. Does that make sense? Because Christians are so easily stirred up is it makes us look silly in the world's eyes. They can drop one little thing in our midst and we just start getting all shaky and panicky. Okay, stop it. Mellow out. Because Jesus is on the throne. He's in control. And no, the world does not get to do whatever the world wants to do. It's never been that way, and it will never be that way. I get bad things are occurring, but do not let it jostle you. Make it your ambition. If you want to get fired up about something, you want to be all driven about something, get driven about the idea of mellowing out. Number two, (laughs) number two, he said, I want you to mind your own business. See, one of the things I love about Paul is he's subtle. <laughs> Mind your own business. Stop stirring up trouble. Stop stirring up conflict. Maybe you got too much time on your hands. It means get your affairs in order and get out of other people's. That's what the definition means. Stop with the whole... Did you see what, did you see what he did? We all know those kids in class. Right. And you're like, do you really have nothing going on in your own life that you need to hang out and tell me that? Yeah, but he but he but he. Relax. Mind your own business. Well, I'm supposed to engage with my brother. Okay, that's different. That's not the whole I got to run around and find everything going wrong. And when I see it, I'm going to freak out and then go run and tell everyone that I know those two things are different. Mind your own business. Let's get working on our own spiritual lives. It says, last one, and work with your hands just as we told you. 
Work with your hands. What do you mean? It means support yourself. Work hard. Don't be a leech. Don't be dependent. If you don't have to be. Be able to help others. The reason why this was a big deal is that some of these people weren't Jews. Now, in the Jewish world, manual labor was very honorable. Every young Jewish boy was taught a trade with his hands. The Greeks, however, despised it and said, no, only the lower class does that. That's what slaves are for. Whatever job you do, you better not be working with your hands. You need to be the elite. And then you go buy someone to do that. So some of these guys came from that background. That's how their dads taught them. That's how their moms taught them. That's what they were used to. And Paul said, whoa, 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 whoa. When we were with you, we worked like crazy with our hands so we wouldn't be dependent on you. And that's a good thing. You need to have a solid work ethic, he said. We have a big problem of that in this church. I shouldn't say a big problem. We have a problem with that. They have the same problem. There's two reasons that commentaries side on as to why they had such a problem with this. One whole group of commentaries of brilliant people said that when Paul taught early on that Jesus Christ was returning, which he's about to talk about next, so contextually it would make sense, that when he said Jesus Christ was returning, they went, oh, and they ran out and sold everything and went, come Lord Jesus. He said, most commentaries go, I think that's what Paul was talking about. That they didn't work with their hands, they just kind of hung out and waited for Jesus to show up. They sold everything, gave everything away, and then sat around waiting for Jesus. I disagree with all those brilliant people. I side with the little losers over here in this corner, right? That said, you know what I think the problem is? They're lazy. Why do I think that they're lazy? Because... Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. He addresses it again. Meaning, as much as they worked on the love part, they really didn't work on this part. So we had to do it all over again. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Turn there. And we're almost done. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle, not doing anything, and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, meaning we weren't leeches. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this... Not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he will not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of what's doing of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. All right. That's why I think they're lazy. Because I think Paul said, you're lazy. Now, here's the thing. Some of us in this room are lazy. And we're lazy and we use Christianity as an excuse. 
or we use something else as an excuse. Oh, I'm not really going to get this job because that job's kind of underneath me. And I don't, I don't You know what? I'm really going to wait for the right thing. And I don't really want to do you're lazy and you're pompous. Stop doing that. Here's the other thing. We start using some weird concept that somehow poverty is spiritual. I simplified. I gave everything away. That's awesome, dude. I have to pay for your lunch. I'm like Jesus. If you're like Jesus, I should go be able to catch a fish and pull a coin out of his mouth and pay for your taxes and mine. Right? All right, here's the deal. (laughs) You're not spiritual, you're poor. And some of you did it on purpose. If you are currently having a hard time and your heart bleeds to want to work hard and our economy is shutting you out. If you are a man or a woman that with every fiber of your body said, I'd love to work. Thank you very much. Then you're the one we should rescue. You are the one we should support. You're the one that we need to take care of because you are good. Just because you don't have a job doesn't mean that you're a loser. It's your heart intent. And if you really do want to work, we need to step up and support you and love on you. I mean, no disrespect to anyone that is in that situation. As a matter of fact, I need to pray harder for you and take of my own money and give it to you. You understand? However, I'm talking about those jokers who are messing around and just want to still play video games and do nothing. I'm talking about the people who think they can just live off brotherly love. No, don't do that because you make yourself look foolish and we don't respect you, nor does anyone else grow up because the Bible puts a high value on helping other people, right? How are you going to do that when you don't want to work? Oh, I'm spiritual. No, you're not. You're just not helping anyone else. Well, I'm not really into that career thing. I'm not, I resist the man. <laughs> I'm about to resist you. Paul said, you guys, listen, everybody's watching us and we're sitting there messing around and doing all our own things. It's just not right. It's not friendly. It's not polite. Come on, we're here to work with each other. And if we have the ability to work, let's do that. In this economy, having a job is a wonderful gift. It is so hard to find. It is so maddening to search and search and search. If you have a job, please be thankful Please don't walk around bitter because you have work. The rest of us want one. But if you're just joking around, don't do that anymore. So that last verse, you may your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody. I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to have a closing challenge and get out of here. I believe that 
God may have something for you in this video. But I want you to understand that in my rebuke, I love you. And I love you deeply. And I know that for a lot of us, we're still growing up. We don't mean to hurt anybody. All I'm asking for is that you would open your eyes to allow God to help you grow up and submit to his will. Because I have to do the same thing. It's no different between you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. That, Lord, I look at my life and I have no business preaching. I have no business teaching this message because I'm sure I hurt people too. I don't intend to. I don't mean to. But I'm sure I do. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would teach us how to be different. That you would teach us how to be responsible. And that, Lord, we might bring benefit to your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.